first script I wrote for this episode, I've probably written and recorded this about three times now. And when I first, when I was first writing and recording that first draft, it was a few days after the 4th of July in 2018. And at that time, I just finished, I, we as America, had just finished celebrating the 242nd anniversary of our revolution. And I was thinking about how far the U.S. has come. You know, we started as this colonial backwater, kind of clawed our way up to second-rate power, eventually becoming, you know, the champion of democracy in the Cold War. And then finally, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we became the unquestioned hegemon of the world. And then I started thinking, and I started wondering about what the next 50 years of American history would look like, because I believe this era of history, this Pax Americana, this American dominance, I think that's coming to an end. And I don't want to get caught up in the whole, you know, oh, Trump is ending an era, or oh, Obama started the decline. No, it's the Republicans. No, it's the Democrats. I don't want to get into that kind of talk. Not only is it not helpful, but I think if you try hard enough, you could find enough reason to blame anyone. Personally, I think the decline of American hegemony has a bit of inevitability built into it, right? I mean, no hegemon lasts forever, not until we have the last one. And when I reference American dominance, I don't mean in matters of education or economics or healthcare or culture. I'm talking exclusively in the realm of international affairs. For my entire life, the U.S. has been the champion of the liberal world order, it's been the dominant force in international affairs, and it's been able to pursue its interests globally without challenge. Sure, there were the occasional protestations at the UN, you know, every now and again we would piss off France, but none of this ever really stopped the U.S. from doing what it wanted, and I think people have taken it for granted that when the U.S. decides the trajectory of another nation or another people, they decided that a certain thing was going to happen, that there was frankly little anyone else could do to stop it. The U.S. decided Yugoslavia was going to break up, and so it did. The U.S. decided Saddam was going to go, and so he did. Same thing happened with Noriega and Panama. Same thing happened with Gaddafi in Libya. Omar Gaddafi, who ruled that country for some 42 years, may in fact Even be dead. when other states would get mad at us or avow political or economic revenge, it never really mattered because the U.S. is capable of weathering any storm. But more importantly, it was willing. And, and so what do I mean by willing? Well, the closest a group of nations really got economically, right, to forcing U.S. policy to go against its interests was in the 1970s when the OPEC nations, most Middle Eastern countries, declared an oil embargo against the United the oil States. Oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They, they imposed this embargo in retaliation for our support of is Israel in one of the many Arab-Israeli wars. We not only weathered that storm, but we responded by becoming what is today the largest oil producer in the world. Such was the extent that the U.S. was willing to exercise its economic might that the oil czars of the world tried to cut us off, and we responded by becoming an oil czar in our own right. Such was the extent that the U.S. was willing to exercise its power. 
But I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think we, being the average American voter, I don't think we're willing to do that anymore. I think we're getting a little tired of the effort. I think we kind of, you know, want to sit back and relax for a bit. And I think other nations have started to take notice, and the entire world is starting to act a little differently. And if I had to pinpoint the event that really let everyone know that the era of American hegemony was coming to an end, it wouldn't be Iraq or Afghanistan. It wouldn't be the 2008 recession. I would instead point to the Syrian civil war. Today, Syria doesn't come up on the news all that often. There was a point in time when we were getting updates every week, but now the general consensus today is that the war is winding down. Russia's Vladimir Putin and Syria's Bashar al-Assad are kind of mopping up what's left of the rebellion. And the U.S. media is far too concerned with Trump tweets and other nonsense to really follow the story as closely as they used to. And this is a shame, because Syria is something more Americans need to know about in order to better understand America's position in the great game of geopolitics. Because our position is hugely different than it was in the 90s after the Cold War, or in the early 2000s after 9-11. I believe the Syrian civil war has fundamentally altered America's position. I think it's changed things, and I think it will remain not just an important historical event, but an important event in the history of the United States. Syria marks what could be argued as the end of unchallenged Western hegemony. And in order to better understand the significance of this, I think it's important to talk about the difference between failure and defeat. It's narrow, but it's a very important difference that can make all the difference in the world. It's the difference between the North Vietnamese needing to beat the Americans to win the Vietnam War and needing to simply not lose in order to win. The North Vietnamese lost every single battle they fought against the U.S., but they won the war because all they had to do was not lose. Not losing, it turns out, is much easier than winning, especially if you're outgunned. This is something the North Vietnamese understood. This is something George Washington understood in the American Revolution. This is an idea that arguably goes back to the Roman general Fabius fighting against Hannibal in the Second Punic War. But for me, this was crystallized in the 18th century by Karl von Clausewitz. Clausewitz is sort of the uh, Jesus Christ figure of Western military theory. And a point he goes out of his way to make multiple times in his book On War is that war itself is in the pursuit of the political object. War is a political action. So you only really need to win the political side of it. By simply not losing, the North Vietnamese and George Washington managed to hang on to the political victory, despite at times being in the face of certain military defeat. So in modern military interventions, in a world where the U.S. had operated pretty much unchallenged, it's never been defeat by an outside force that ends in American intervention. At least, not until Syria. It's always been the internal failure of the U.S. to accomplish its objectives in a way that is politically acceptable. Going back to Clausewitz, when it fails, the U.S. eventually fails to achieve the political objective before the enemy can accomplish theirs. Case in point, Somalia, 1993, the famous Battle of Mogadishu. This is Black Hawk Down. But let's start with why America is there. You basically have a failed state in Somalia. 
the UN's trying to send food shipments over there. Local warlords are seizing those shipments and controlling the populace. Probably a soft genocide going on there, lots of atrocities. The U.S. decides to go in to try and remove these warlords, to try and remove these militias so that the U.N. can deliver food and aid to the people. In this Battle of Mogadishu, 18 Americans are killed and around 70 are wounded. But America wins that battle. The U.S. kills or wounds about 1,500 enemy combatants. But more importantly, it accomplishes all of its objectives. In this operation, the point was to go in and capture this leader because uh, Muhammad Farah Ayyadid, who is one of the key warlords in the region that was controlling the area and causing a lot of problems, he was meeting with some generals and some enemy VIPs. The idea was bunch of rangers and delta force are gonna helicopter in they're gonna snatch them up and that objective was accomplished but the battle is a public relations nightmare in the course of the battle not only are 18 americans killed but it winds up what was supposed to be like a one hour or two hour operation winds up taking more than 24 hours Pakistan eventually has to send in a mountain division to help rescue trapped Americans. Two U.S. Blackhawks are shot down. You have U.S. helicopters burning on CNN. There are American POWs. I mean, this is not a good look. And this is us winning the battle. So if you're the president, you're telling everyone that we're intervening in this country because we're trying to help them out, this is not the image you want people to see. People are going to look at that image, they're going to hear what you're saying it's for, and they're going to make the conclusion that it's not worth it. And that's exactly what happened. The political fallout eventually forces the U.S. to withdraw from Somalia, and yet the Somalis didn't really cause any of that. They fought the battle, sure, but the failure was internal. Whether it's, you know, news media or politicians capitalizing on the moment, you know, they love to demand the president to withdraw. They love demanding things of the president, especially if it's, you know, the other party in power. But the failure was internal. And this internal kind of failure has been responsible for most of the U.S.'s failed interventions since Vietnam. And I think you could even include Vietnam, despite the Vietnamese receiving substantial Soviet and Chinese support, because despite this support, Vietnam still loses the war from a military perspective, right? They lose every single battle. The Tet Offensive was a huge blunder for the Vietnamese army. But the Vietnam conflict, the war, was lost due to a failure to control the political situation back home, back in the United States. And this brings us to Syria and why it's so important. The U.S. intervention in Syria is the first such defeat, and I do believe that as of today, the U.S. intervention has been defeated. It is the first such defeat the U.S. has suffered in a long time because it isn't due to internal failure, it's due to an adversary. The U.S. went into Syria with clear political objectives. The U.S. was in the process of accomplishing these objectives. And then a rival power, Russia, comes in with objectives of their own. And they weren't just different than the U.S., they were in direct competition. And Russia reverses the war, and completely seizes the entire theater. This is a monumental shift in great power dynamics because it says to the world that American dominance 
if it's not in decline, then at the very least, it's questionable. Yes, the U.S. remains the preeminent military power on the planet, but unfortunately that's in an age when it's no longer acceptable to use all the military power afforded to you, and so what good is it? If the U.S. wanted to take over Syria, it could take over Syria. But Barack Obama wasn't going to do that. Donald Trump isn't going to do that. And I think it's a safe bet to say whoever comes after Donald Trump isn't going to do that either. So in an age when a nation can't use all of the strength afforded to it, the value of that strength is diminished. And if another power is willing to use more strength than you are, then that nation is in fact more powerful. Or it is at least, maybe it's not more powerful because there are a lot of aspects to consider when we talk about a nation's power, but it is at least more capable militarily because it's willing to use it. Here is an admittedly terrible metaphor, but I think it's one that can illustrate what I'm trying to say. So when it comes to the military, the U.S. is like a Ferrari. Right? It's built to go as fast as possible and is therefore the fastest car on the planet. I know there are faster cars out there, but for the sake of the metaphor, bear with me here. But when it came to Syria, Obama and now Trump were only willing to go 60 miles an hour. Trump, initially even less so because of his isolationist leanings, but as we'll see, turns out he's actually willing to go a little bit faster. Now, the military, the U.S. military, is certainly capable of much more. U.S. military in this metaphor can go 200 miles an hour, but the political situation at home means we can only go 60 miles an hour in Syria. Russia is a Nissan. It's more purpose-built. It's definitely not the fastest car in the world. But where the U.S. is only willing to go 60 miles an hour, Russia is willing to go 80 miles an hour. And in Syria, Russia was willing to commit more men, more supplies, more arms, it was willing to take more direct action than the U.S. was, and it was willing to weather the political and domestic consequences of doing so. The U.S. wasn't. Since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I would argue that any American politician who tried to match Russia's commitment would either be removed from office or never elected in the first place. A strong point against Hillary Clinton was that she wanted to establish a no-fly zone over Syria in order to get Russia out of the picture. I think a no-fly zone could save lives and could hasten the end of the conflict. I am well aware of the really legitimate concerns that you have expressed from both the president This would have required more commitment, and that turned a lot of voters off. That was a strong point that Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, a lot of the Democratic and Republican primary candidates all hit Hillary Clinton on. So what Syria demonstrated to the world, what Russia's intervention and defeat of the U.S. effort demonstrated, was that yes, it is possible for a competing power to accomplish its objectives despite U.S. resistance. And I should qualify U.S. resistance and competing power, and I mean this in the foreign affairs, the military sphere, because places like China are already competing economically with its One Belt, One Road initiative. I always have trouble saying that. One Belt, One Road initiative. But Russia's successful intervention in Syria dispelled the notion that the U.S. and its goals would be pursued unchallenged in the military sphere. And it laid out a blueprint of how to successfully challenge it, and I think this is something that needs to be talked about. It's all still very new, and the Syrian civil war is still going on. We don't have a lot of credible information out there. How the world operates in the future, what this means for American strategy, I have no idea. 
but it's something we can try to understand. And I can only do that by talking through it. And so I figured if I was going to do that anyway, I might as well record it. That's sort of the impetus for all of this. So in this first episode of what I think will probably be a two or three part series, I'm going to go over the Syrian civil war in the history of both the US and Russian interventions and try to find out how and to what extent Russia was able to emerge victorious. And maybe by the end of this, I'll come to the conclusion that they haven't emerged victorious. Maybe it's just a temporary victory while the U.S. approaches it from a new angle that ultimately wins the day. I don't know. But only by taking the time to talk about it do I think we can start to understand the legacy of the Syrian civil war and how important I think it will eventually prove to be. So let's break down what that legacy is to its most basic. What if this were, you know, if this were a note in a historical book, what is sort of the Cliff Notes version? Well, the U.S. intervened in Syria, then Russia intervened in Syria, and then for all intents and purposes, Russia won. To really understand what this means, I figured it makes sense to first examine how each country performs an intervention. So, since I'm American, let's start with the U.S. intervention in Syria. It also came before Russian intervention, so both chronologically and to fit my own biases, it makes sense to go with the U.S. first. But... In order to do that any justice, we really need to understand the Syrian civil war. And that's kind of a problem. Because it's no secret that this war is super complicated. It's been going on for seven years, and some analysts have referred to it as a sort of Middle Eastern world war. And while the scale is smaller, they aren't exactly wrong because it is incredibly global. In this war, you have the civil part of the civil war. You have the government of Bashar al-Assad, and you have the rebels, and the rebels themselves can be split into fundamentalists and quote-unquote moderates. You have ISIS, you have Iraq, you have Iraqi Kurdistan, and their fight with ISIS spills over into the war. You have Iran and its Hezbollah militias, which by nature of it being Hezbollah therefore brings in Lebanon. You have Turkey, you have the Syrian Kurds, there's Russia, there's the U.S., you have NATO allies, there's Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Qatar, however you want to pronounce it. You have the UAE, I think even Morocco's in there at one point. However, the two major external players are the U.S. and Russia. And I'm focusing just on these competing great powers because they have opposing geopolitical goals. Also, talking about the U.S. is something I'm more comfortable doing as an American who studies American foreign policy. And frankly, if I were to really explore how and why every country were involved, I'd be here for like a year. It would be like trying to record a podcast or write a book that thoroughly covers the entirety of the Second World War. Rise and Fall of the Third Reich is a book that looks at the Nazi political side of the equation, and it's a thousand pages. And you could probably still find some historians who say it glossed over some things or overlooked others completely. And I bring this up because when I've tried to have this discussion about the U.S. and Russia and Syria, whether it's with classmates or professors or colleagues or people I work with, you know, inevitably someone says, oh, well, you're not considering this or you're not considering that. They eventually want to talk about Turkey and Erdogan and then Turkish nationalism or the Kurdish nationalism or the new Iraqi government and Iran and Hezbollah. They want to talk about Libya. Some have even brought up Yugoslavia. I say that knowing I just brought it up as well earlier on, but that's okay. The problem I have 
with trying to address every this and that in something as complicated as the Syrian civil war is that you're going to get lost in the weeds and you're going to forget what you were trying to analyze in the first place. As an example, I was talking with a classmate about Russia's targeted assassinations of journalists, which we'll get into later. And they said, well, you know, what about America's drone program? Those are targeted assassinations. First, I didn't understand why they were bringing that up anyway. I think they thought I was making a moral judgment. I wasn't, if we're just looking at what the tactics are. And sure, America's drone program are technically targeted assassinations, but there's a difference between droning an ISIS leader or making a mistake and droning a wedding, though if you look into that wedding incident, you'll see it's a little bit more complicated than that. But there's a difference between that and kidnapping and murdering a journalist who is critical of what your country is doing and trying to spotlight to the world the tactics that you're employing against an insurgency. I think we can agree there's a difference there. Now, we can certainly go down that rabbit hole of is one equivalent to the other, but as I said, to do so would be to lose focus on what we're trying to analyze in the first place, which is the American and Russian models of intervention and how they competed and why Russia's won in Syria. Now, I know I just went on about how I shouldn't have to address everything, but that said, I do need to address Iran for a second. Iran plays a huge role in the Syrian civil war. If there were a third external power that we would really discuss, it would be Iran. And you'll hear me say Iran, Iran, Iran. I'm not consistent with my pronunciations, sorry. You'll also hear me do that with Putin. I'll say Putin and then Putin. It happens. Now, as for Iran, I used to intern at a security policy think tank in D.C. called FDD, the... Uh, they were the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. They are kind of an Iranian watchdog. From Washington is Mark Dubowitz. He is with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and is a leading critic of... And while working there, I came to understand that Iran is entering this sort of neo-imperialist phase. And they're entering this phase where Iran is extending its influence and its power over neighboring countries. So the ruling Islamic Dawah party in Iraq, that's funded by Iran and the Iranian revolution. Iran supports both the sitting Afghan government and the Taliban. They're fighting for hegemony and influence in Yemen against Saudi Arabia. Hezbollah, which is a state arm of Iran, controls Lebanon. And they're spreading into Latin America as well. So Syria is really just another front in Iran's push to establish itself as a regional and global power. And before we go any further, I just want to say now, because this is going to be an issue when we talk about counterinsurgency operations and Russia's tactics, I'm not passing any moral judgments here. It makes sense to me that Iran would try to expand its base of power because that's what countries do, especially if they don't feel safe, especially if their state apparatus is driven by revolutionary dogma, be it a communist revolution, be it an Islamic revolution, or be it arguably a democratic revolution. Revolutions tend to spread beyond borders. They're very hard to contain. So Syria is just another part of Iran's attempt to expand, but I'm not going to focus on it because I don't think they played as big of a role as some believe. I think the fact is, if Russia hadn't intervened, then the U.S. intervention would be on course, with Iran not really having made that much of a difference. If you're interested in Iran's role in Syria, FDD has a podcast called Foreign Policy. 
and they did a great episode all about Syria and Iran, and you should definitely check it out to learn more. So, with all that said and the caveats done with, let's talk about the U.S. and our preferred model of intervention, which is called the Afghan model. It's not a strict set of rules, but it's exactly what it says it is. It's a model. You sort of tailor it to the situation you need it to work in. And really, ever since this model has been used, whenever the U.S. has intervened in any country, whether it's in the Middle East or Africa, this is what we've used. If you really want to get into it, if you're really interested, there's a great article that came out of the, uh, MIT, I think. It's called Winning with Allies. And it's a deep dive into the Afghan model. I highly suggest you give it a read. But we're going to go over the Cliff Notes version. So after 9-11 we decide to invade Afghanistan. But even before we can launch our formal invasion, a small group of U.S. Special Forces supporting the local rebels of the Northern Alliance defeat the Taliban's army and overthrow the government. But how did that all happen? Well, September 11th, 2001, World Trade Center attacks. And by October 19th, the U.S. has Special Forces in Afghanistan. And I'm going to play a sort of two-minute mashup here. This comes from a report by John McQuethy, who was the national security correspondent for ABC News. This is part of a larger piece he did chronicling what eventually became the Afghan model. November 5th, just 17 days after U.S. soldiers arrived, the first major offensive of the war begins, high in the mountains south of the strategically important town of Mazari Sharif. Special operations teams using lasers and GPS coordinates begin calling in airstrikes, methodically shredding the Taliban front line. November 13th. In one incredible 24-hour period, just three days after the collapse of Mazari Sharif, three major cities fall. Herat in the west, Talaquan in the north, and finally the capital, Kabul. November 17th, U.S. aircraft being directed by American soldiers with Karzai rain bombs on Taliban attackers. Karzai's small force takes the town of Tarankaut. November 25th. After their sweeping victories in the north, anti-Taliban forces surround the city of Kanduz. It falls, creating the largest mass surrender of the war. December 9th. After four days of heavy fighting, Kandahar finally falls. Hamid Karzai, now interim president, enters the city. Kandahar is the last major city in Afghanistan to fall. The U.S. still has fewer than 200 special operations troops scattered across the country. Never before had special operations teams played such a huge role in an American war. What these U.S. soldiers did promises to reshape how America goes to war for decades to come. In Winning with Allies, the authors write, quote, The speed with which these tactics worked in Afghanistan surprised everyone from National Security Council planners to the combatants participating in operations. What many of the war's planners had envisioned as a holding operation to prepare the battlefield for a sizable conventional force ended in the rapid defeat of the 50,000-man Afghan army and the fall of the Taliban regime it supported." End quote. Afghanistan was essentially defeated, and all it took were some well-placed airstrikes, some special forces, and a healthy amount of supply in both 
weapons, ammo, and, and the like, given to local rebel forces. And I think people became so consumed with the quagmire in Iraq that we forgot how well we succeeded in Afghanistan. It's not really a great metric for success, but I think casualty figures demonstrate what I'm talking about. And I, I still hesitate to do this because, again, casualties, not a great measure of success. But by 2006, there were 1,600 U.S. military deaths in Iraq and only 125 in Afghanistan. The objectives to overthrow the Taliban, defeat their army, and establish a transitional government were accomplished under budget and ahead of schedule. And, bonus, not that many Americans killed. Now how this all eventually broke down with reconstruction and corruption and the loss of security, that's a whole other issue. That to me is a failure of follow-up. The intervention was successful, but the state building, the nation building part, that was a failure. And we're not discussing nation building, we're talking about intervention models. So being more focused on the intervention part of the equation, the U.S. military leaders looked at what happened in Afghanistan and asked themselves if it could be replicated. Is there something here that we can take and apply to other conflict zones and see the same success? This idea eventually evolved into the Afghan model. And a key thing to remember is that politicians may not necessarily understand the nuts and bolts of the Afghan model, but they really like it. The Afghan model is a political winner. They like it because it limits American boots on the ground. With this model, you can intervene in other countries and not have to worry about having your Black Hawk Down moment. You don't have to have a war declaration passed through Congress. You don't even have to let Congress know that you're using this force because technically you're not really at war. You're not sending a large force over there. Now, there might still be some political backlash. We saw um, in Niger, there was a U.S. Special Forces member who was killed, and that made the rounds on TV. It got the administration some bad press, but was it nearly as bad as what Bush 2 went through in Iraq? I was in high school when the Iraq war was, you know, at full steam, and you had the news every single night coming on TV to tell you how many Americans were wounded or killed, what setbacks were happening, what battles were going on, if there were, you know, American prisoners... The Battle of Fallujah was all over TV when you had the Blackwater contractors. Their bodies were mutilated and hung from a bridge. You also had people like Cindy Sheehan. People probably don't know her name now or totally forgot about her, but she was a huge figure at this time. Her son died in Iraq, and she starts camping out in front of George Bush's ranch, calling him a war criminal. People start following her. She's leading protests on primetime television. Shame on you for giving him the authority to invade Iraq. And we're going to say not one person should have died. Not one more should die. Can you scream that to the, to the White House? Not one more. Not one more. Not one more. You also had Code Pink protesters storming Marine recruiting offices in San Francisco. You had the Iraq Body Count website posting updates all over social media. And remember, the Iraq war happened right as social media starts to explode. So this stuff was everywhere. This is not to say that Afghanistan didn't attract media attention, although it is sometimes referred to as the Forgotten War. There was the Pat Tillman incident. Tillman was a professional football player who left to go fight in Afghanistan. He was killed, and at first it was reported he died to enemy fire. And there was this big patriotic response. You know, here's a guy who left this comfortable life to go fight for his country, and he died fending off terrorists in the mountains. 
And then a month later, everyone found out he actually died to friendly fire. This wasn't some conspiracy, I think. I think it was just delay of information. It was reported he was dead, and then there was an investigation a month later, turned out friendly fire, and when the administration found out, they let everyone know. Some people, though, a little bit more cynical, think it was this big propaganda effort. So things like this happened, and there was the occasional bout of media scrutiny in Afghanistan, but compared to Iraq? Compared to Vietnam? I mean, this was a drop in the bucket. So the Afghan model lets you intervene, and it lets you essentially go to war, and yet it lets you dodge all the downsides of it. Let's you dodge a huge amount of media and public scrutiny because Americans aren't dying as much. And Americans aren't dying as much because Americans aren't the ones doing the bulk of the fighting. The Afghan model uses local forces. In Afghanistan, this was the Northern Alliance. In Nigeria, it's actually the local government forces. In Libya, it was the Free Libyan Army. In Syria, it's the Free Syrian Army, or the FSA. And the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. These locals, they're the ones doing the fighting, so they take the casualties. This limits American exposure, which plays into the second part of the Afghan model, which encourages multilateral cooperation. And this cooperation is billed to some as a way of lessening the burden on the U.S. military by sharing the load with our partners. But let's take a second and look at the 2011 intervention in Libya, because the Libyan intervention was quintessential Afghan model. Just a quick rundown. In Libya, there was the Arab Spring led to a revolution. The U.S. supports the rebels to overthrow Gaddafi and install a democratic government. Well, when the intervention starts going on, the idea was that NATO was going to take point with the U.S. taking a back seat. We would absolutely help out and contribute, but this wasn't going to be a U.S.-led intervention. This was going to be a multilateral effort. It was NATO taking a common stand and leading the fight with some American assistance. In a sort of post-mortem of the intervention, the Swedish Defense Research Agency wrote a report, and they write, quote, European member states were at the forefront of the NATO intervention in Libya, and expectations are that European countries should be prepared to shoulder a larger defense role in Europe. Neither the French nor the British were prepared for the U.S. to take such a pronounced backseat role. At the same time, the U.S. has for long called on its European allies to step up to the plate and contribute more to NATO, end quote. And yet, despite this backseat role, despite the U.S., you know, sort of taking a step back and letting France and Britain sort of run the show with the rest of NATO, despite all of that, we wind up flying more sorties and completing more strikes than any other nation involved. There's a great infographic by The Guardian which shows the breakdown of airstrikes in Libya. And in this war, where America takes the back seat, the U.S. still flies over 2,000 sorties. The next highest is the U.K. with 1,300, followed by France with 1,200. The U.S. launched over 200 cruise missiles, at about a million a pop. The U.K. launched 18. Not 1,800, 18. France didn't launch any. As far as airplanes go, the UK, France, Italy, Canada, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, Spain, Turkey, the Netherlands, Jordan, the UAE, and Qatar combined send about 140 airplanes into the fight. The US sent 153. So the multilateral cooperation 
isn't about lessening the burden on the U.S. military because that doesn't actually happen all that much. It's about limiting international scrutiny. France can't protest to the U.N. that America is intervening in another country if France is part of that intervening force, right? So the Afghan model establishes a way for you to intervene without worrying about trouble at home. You don't have to worry about international pressure. So now all you have to do is win the fight. And this is where the special forces come in. These soldiers do fight alongside the local rebel forces, but more importantly, I shouldn't say local rebel forces because sometimes they are local government forces like in Nigeria and Niger, but more importantly, these special forces help equip the local troops, they help train them on the new equipment, and then they help direct them into the fight. So for the US, maybe it's the Green Berets or the 75th Rangers, Maybe it's the CIA Special Activities Division, but these guys show up and they say, Hello, local forces. Here's a new rifle. Here's how to shoot it. And here's where you're going to shoot it. Once that local group is armed and trained, the special forces may stick around and go on raids with them. Maybe they'll help them attack some supply lines or help them draw up an overall strategy to kick the enemy out of a region or topple the government. But what they're also supposed to do is direct U.S. airstrikes. Air superiority and air power have been the mainstay of Western military strategy since World War II. Cruise missiles in particular and precision strikes have been a huge part of Western military strategy since the Gulf War. We like using these weapons because they're more accurate, because it reduces collateral damage, it reduces civilian deaths, which is good PR for us. But that also means these weapons are more expensive because, you know, some are GPS guided, some are guided by wires and radar. These are high technology weapons and they're incredibly powerful. Unfortunately, it's just not wise to give some random SDF captain a direct line to an American strike group and trust that he's going to use that power responsibly. There's the fear that maybe he calls in an airstrike on someone he owes money to. Maybe there's a rival clan or a rival chieftain, someone he's had disagreements with. We don't care about their disagreements, but hey, he's got a direct line to a U.S. Tomahawk missile. Or worse, maybe this random captain doesn't have any compulsions about killing innocent civilians, so he wants to call in some airstrikes on an innocent village. So in the Afghan model, the Western Special Forces, they're the ones who call them in. What the Afghan model essentially does is combine the qualitative edge of Western military technology with the need for bodies and meat on the ground to take the hits and capture and hold the territory. You can say it's racist, you can say it isn't fair, but the fact is it's much easier for the West if the people dying aren't Western, if they aren't European, and if they aren't American. It's just better for us all around. I wish the Syrians all the best in the world, I really do, but if you come to me and tell me a hundred Syrians were killed in an attack on a government facility, I'm going to say, wow, that sucks, and then I'll probably go back to whatever I was doing. If you tell me a hundred Americans died, I'm going to wonder why, and maybe I'll ask if it was really worth it. The Afghan model lets you mostly avoid this issue. And the model itself actually goes a little further than just the intervention part. It does go a little bit into state building. The idea is that after the war is won, the state, or what's left of it, is in turn occupied and policed by indigenous forces that the locals recognize and are more amenable to. In theory, this should degrade an insurgency because you as the innocent bystander aren't feeling like you're being occupied by an outsider. And thus, you would be less likely to support an insurgent movement. This isn't some white Christian dude 
standing on the street corner with a rifle. It's a guy who looks like you. You may even know him. Unfortunately, this part of the Afghan model, this after-intervention part, that hasn't really worked. It was disastrous in Libya. It didn't work there because these local forces that get armed and trained up, they're only united in their goal to oust the tyrannical government. But once that's gone, the difference between these groups start to pull them apart and they start to fight. And they fight using the weapons and training we gave them so they're pretty good at it. Security breaks down. The rule of law breaks down. And then you get chaos. So that's the Afghan model. It focuses on building the local capability and helping them form a new infrastructure and new security and new state governments to accomplish the objective on the cheap. It's often referred to as a lead from behind method, and it has to some extent worked every single time it's been implemented, and that includes in Syria. When the U.S. first went into Syria, it was part of the larger war on terrorism. Despite aligning with anti-Assad forces, the U.S.'s primary target was ISIS. I think that was mostly just for PR. But deposing Assad was seen as sort of a side benefit. It was something we really wanted, but not something we could really take action on. As early as 2011, Barack Obama was calling for Assad to step down, but he was never willing to attack Syrian assets directly. The removal of Assad was an objective of the U.S. intervention. But frankly, I think it was framed as sort of this side gig in the larger fight against ISIS. Like, hey, while we're defeating this crazy radical Islamic group, wouldn't it be great if we deposed Assad? That's how I think they framed it. Now, the fight against ISIS is a whole other thing. It's one of those aspects of the Syrian civil war that deserves a thousand-page book all its own, and I'm sure someone's already writing it, despite us not having all the information, despite ISIS still being around. For the purposes of this discussion, I don't want to focus on ISIS. I want to focus on the fight to topple Assad. The spearhead of this effort, supported by the United States, was the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. These were freedom fighters, these were rebels, and these were members of the Syrian military who had defected. Now, this fight eventually came down to the Battle of Aleppo. Aleppo attracted a lot of media attention because it basically became hell on earth. Aleppo was also Syria's largest city. It created hundreds of thousands of refugees. Thousands of civilians were killed. And you had high-profile kidnappings of Western aid workers. There was a really high-profile case in Italy, and that made the rounds on television because, wouldn't you know it, the girls were young and pretty. And so Aleppo became the humanitarian crisis of the Syrian civil war and the representation of the refugee crisis that was going on in Europe. And then let's not forget... You also had Gary Johnson, libertarian candidate for president, on TV saying... What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About? Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. As someone who voted for Gary Johnson... Oh, man. So, the battle for Aleppo starts in 2012. By 2015, the U.S.-supported rebels had captured half the city... They were gaining more territory, and at this point, the world was convinced that Assad was on the ropes. In May 2015, Charles Lister, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., which is a fairly prominent think tank, he wrote an article that said, quote, Recent events have clearly tipped the psychological scales back into the opposition's favor. 
Losses in Idlib and the southern government of Dira have placed great pressure on Assad, whose severe manpower shortages are becoming more evident by the day. Frustration, disaffection, and even incidences of protest are rising across Assad's most ardent areas of support on Syria's coast, some of which are now under direct attack. Hezbollah is stretched thin, and even Iranian forces have begun withdrawing to the areas of Syria deemed to be the most important for regime survival. The regime is no longer militarily capable of launching definitively successful operations outside of its most valuable territories, while its capacity for defense against concerted attack now appears questionable at best, end quote. This isn't to say, haha, look at this guy getting it wrong. This is how it looked. This is how it was. So what happened? How did we go from Assad is on the ropes to Assad has basically won the war? What happened? The Afghan model was working. Assad was losing men faster than he could replace them, and the place supplying those replacements were starting to revolt and were coming under attack. His allies were leaving him, and the most important city in Syria, its cultural and economic hub, was about to fall to the Free Syrian Army. And then in late September, things change. The first Russian airstrikes begin, and the rebels start to take more casualties. They start losing territory. Assad suddenly has more men. He has more weapons. He has more equipment. Russian special forces are on the ground, and they have jet bombers in the air. Russia is launching cruise missiles from the Caspian Sea. They even manage to steam over their old aircraft carrier and launch attacks from there for three months. And before you know it, all of the gains made by the U.S.'s support of the FSA and the SDF, they're wiped out. The rebel groups start to lose cohesion, and Assad begins taking back control of his country. The Russian model of intervention came to Syria, and it came to save Assad and secure Moscow's interests. And it does this with incredible efficiency, with modern weapons, with modern tactics. This is an entire Russian expeditionary force, the first one since the fall of the Soviet Union, and it's so shocking that I think there's still some denial among our population. There's still some denial among our representatives, among some other analysts, and there's probably still some denial in the U.S. military. And so to try to understand what happened, to try and understand how Russia managed to do this, we need to go back to where it all began. For me, Russia's transformation into a power that's capable of doing this doesn't begin with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, but it begins in 1996, after the first Chechen War. So in this next section, this next episode, whatever it winds up being, I'm going to go over Soviet and post-Soviet Russian grand strategy, Chechen wars, the Russian model of intervention, their eventual entry into the Syrian civil war, and how they manage to best the United States in this theater. And then we'll talk about what it all means and if this is something we should worry about. So that was episode one of this three-part series on the U.S. and Russian interventions in the Syrian Civil War. This was part one, A Fall from Grace. Part two will be out probably within a week. I think this was a great discussion to have, but if there's anything you'd like to add to it, please feel free to email me at boppodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.